Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us. Episode 105, Space Shuttle Flight 34, STS-36, The Sneaky Satellite. Last time, we talked about the ninth flight of Space Shuttle Columbia, STS-32. The flight was a long time coming, finally retrieving the long-duration exposure facility. LDEF had been left to drift in orbit back in 1984, with the intent to pick it up around a year later. Schedule slips, the Challenger accident, and high-priority missions pushed the retrieval back year after year, but the STS-32 crew arrived in the nick of time and saved LDEF from a fiery re-entry. Before we talk about today's mission, it's time for one of our promised check-ins with the Galileo spacecraft. As you recall, Galileo was deployed by Space Shuttle Atlantis on STS-34 back in October of 1989, beginning its long trip to Jupiter. Due to a number of reasons we discussed back on episode 102, Galileo had to swap out the powerful Shuttle Centaur upper stage for the somewhat less powerful inertial upper stage, typically used to push satellites up to the geostationary ring, not Jupiter. Not to be deterred, the clever flight dynamicists at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory put their heads together and worked out a complex series of gravity assist maneuvers that would get Galileo to Jupiter after all. And the first of those flybys is happening right now. Well, really it was like 30 years ago, but now in our narrative. On February 10th, 1990, Galileo flew past Venus, borrowing a little energy. Venus slowed down an unmeasurably small amount, Galileo sped up, and the mission was one step closer to Jupiter. We'll check back in with Galileo again in around 10 months. The mission we'll be discussing for today's episode is classified, which means we don't have all that much to say about the payload ahead of time. So let's just get this show on the road and meet our crew. Commanding this mission was J.O. Creighton. We last saw Creighton flying as pilot on STS-51G, which punched out a couple of commercial communication satellites. This is his second of three flights. Joining Creighton up front was our pilot, John Casper. Normally, I read astronauts' birthdays here, but Casper's was missing from his official NASA biography. Since it was there on the older versions, thanks archive.org, I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that he asked for them to take it down, and since we don't really need to know anyway, I'll just say that. John Casper was born in Greenville, South Carolina, but considers himself to be from Gainesville, Georgia. He earned a bachelor's degree in engineering science from the U.S. Air Force Academy and a master's in astronautics from Purdue. Casper joined the Air Force, flying 229 combat missions in Vietnam and graduating from the Air Force Test Pilot School. He continued on to run flight test programs, work at the Pentagon, and finally be selected as an astronaut in 1984. This is his first of four flights. Moving on to the mission specialists, mission specialist one was Pierre Thuot. Pierre Thuot, called Pepe by his crewmates, was born on May 19, 1955 in Groton, Connecticut. He earned a bachelor's degree in physics from the U.S. Naval Academy, and later earned a master's in systems management. In between, he joined the Navy and began flying as a radar intercept officer. This is the person who operates all the complex instrumentation while the pilot keeps the aircraft pointed in the right direction. I wasn't clear on if he also served as pilot, but in any case, he completed over 270 carrier landings, graduated from the Navy's test pilot school, and became an instructor at test pilot school, and was then selected as an astronaut in 1985. This is his first of three flights. 
Mission Specialist 2 is someone we've seen a couple of times now, Dave Hilmers. We last saw Hilmers flying on Discovery for STS-26, the return to flight mission. This is his third of four flights. And last but not least, we have Mission Specialist 3, Mike Mullane. We last saw Mullane surveying the heat shield damage after landing in Atlantis on STS-27. This is his third and final flight, so before we let him go, I'll once again recommend his book, Riding Rockets. It's a colorful and often downright crass look at his life and astronaut career. I will say that some astronauts, such as Ox Van Hoften, were not huge fans and disputed some of the facts put forth by Mullane. But it's still a pretty fascinating read, just to see what goes on through some astronauts' minds and bladders in the build-up to a launch. STS-36 had a fair amount of trouble getting off the ground. It was originally scheduled for February 22, 1990, but for only the second time in NASA's history, a launch had to be delayed due to health reasons with the crew. The first time was actually something that took place exactly 50 years before the release of this episode, Apollo 13. But unlike Apollo 13, the crew of STS-36 was not broken up right before launch. Instead, when Mission Commander J.O. Creighton came down with a bad cold, the flight was delayed for 48 hours. The crew had already been in quarantine at this point out at the Kennedy Space Center, but Creighton ended up being quarantined from the quarantine. He was moved to a spare room away from the rest of the crew. Not wanting him to get too lonely, the crew showed up wearing plastic bags over their heads and used a long-handled broom to push him a food tray before fleeing the room. I guess it was too late, though, because first pilot John Casper and then Mission Specialist 2 Dave Hilmers began sniffling and coughing themselves. Lucky for them, the weather on the 24th looked pretty iffy anyway, so the launch was scrubbed again. On the 25th, the weather was looking better, and the crew were feeling good enough to try again. Though, they weren't completely back to 100%. In fact, according to Mullane, on the way out to the pad, pilot Casper held up a bag of medicine, joking that the mission's motto should be... Just say maybe to drugs. The count proceeded smoothly until the last minute. A range safety computer failed, and the backup computer also had an issue. They held at T-31 seconds as long as possible, but with the APUs already running, they could only do that for a few minutes. It wouldn't have mattered anyway. The last second hold caused the liquid oxygen engine inlets to get too cold, and they had to scrub. The next day, on the 26th, they did it all over again. The crew was probably getting pretty sick of this, since every day of delay meant another day maintaining the backwards, stay-up-all-night, sleep-all-day sleep schedule required due to the timing of this liftoff. Well, they could settle in for another day, because at T-minus 9 minutes, the weather was declared unacceptable. For the second time, the crew climbed out of Atlantis and down the elevator. All of these launch attempts took a toll on the crew, and all the folks on the ground who make a shuttle launch happen, so the flight director made this next slip 48 hours, so everyone had a chance to rest up. After four scrubs, it seems that the fifth time was the charm, with only a few-minute delay due to weather impacting the count. On February 28, 1990, at 2.50 a.m. Eastern Time, Atlantis lifted off for the sixth time, lighting up the Florida landscape. The ascent was unique. The secret payload for this flight was originally supposed to fly out of Vandenberg Air Force Base on the west coast, ending up in a high-inclination polar orbit. Those plans were scrapped after the Challenger accident, but this payload had apparently been designed with the shuttle in mind and could not be transferred to an expendable booster. 
Typically, the highest inclination the shuttle can fly into is 57 degrees. Any higher, and it would have to fly over populated areas during powered flight, which wasn't allowed. However, this payload was of such importance that for just this one flight, the rule was lifted. Atlantis lifted off like normal, steering to the highest allowable inclination. But once over the ocean, it pivoted its engines and began to tweak its inclination even higher. This is known as a dogleg trajectory, thanks to the bent, dogleg-like shape of the shuttle's path. The new trajectory carried Atlantis and its crew much closer to the eastern coast of the United States, and even flew right over Cape Cod in Massachusetts, eventually finding itself into a record-setting 62-degree inclination orbit. It was also an unusually low orbit. The actual numbers seem to be classified, or at least just missing, but in his book, Mullane put it at around 210 kilometers, practically scraping the upper edges of the atmosphere. One little interesting thing to note here is that when the external tank was jettisoned, it was the last one that had an active tumble valve. These valves did basically what they sound like. They ejected a little bit of propellant to throw the tank into a slow tumble with the idea being to ensure a tumbling atmospheric entry and guaranteed breakup. But I guess someone decided that it was no longer required, and that was it for the ET tumble valve. Alright, so now we're on orbit. While we don't know much about what the payload was, I can tell you something about how it was deployed. We've seen a few different deployment methods so far on the shuttle. All of the PAMD satellites spun up and were ejected from a little clamshell container. The SYNCOM satellites use the Frisbee deploy technique, rolling up and out of the payload bay. A few satellites were carefully deployed using the shuttle's remote manipulator system. And of course, there's the IUS deploy, where the payload is tilted slightly upwards and ejected over the heads of the astronauts. For this flight, apparently none of them would do the job. So instead, we have the Stabilized Payload Deployment System. As far as I can tell, this may be the only shuttle flight that used this system. At least I couldn't find any other mention of it. And since this mission is classified, that means we don't actually have any pictures of it. But I did find some documentation describing the system and showing how it worked. The designers of the Stabilized Payload Deployment System, which I'm just going to call SPDS from now on, were trying to solve a problem. One thing most of the deployment techniques I just rattled off have in common is that the payload is essentially thrown out of the payload bay. I mean, it's nice and gentle, and they do it carefully, but still. Springs are released, and the payload is pushed out of the payload bay, flying free. The SPDS designers did not like this, noting that while a payload is moving freely in the payload bay, it's possible for it to hit the orbiter. They even have this great quote saying, Note will be taken that the orbiter has a ponderous mass. Further, even the payload may also have a rather ponderous mass. The sizes of these masses thus make considerable damage possible should there be a collision. Ponderous mass. So noted. So what does the SPDS do differently? The payload was held in place in the payload bay by four trunnion pins. These keep things nice and stable during ascent and bear the weight of the payload before reaching orbit. But also holding onto the payload are two boxes on the side of the payload bay, the SPDS. Since I don't have to bear the weight of the payload, they can be pretty small and lightweight. When it's time to deploy, the trunnion pins are released, and the SPDS uses some clever mechanisms 
to raise the whole payload up by just a few inches. It then slowly rolls the whole thing around an axis running through the SPDS boxes. You can sort of imagine the payload rolling up the side of the orbiter to sit along the top edge of the payload bay, sticking out into space. Once it's rolled up and out of the bay, a spring mechanism is engaged and the payload is sent on its way. The difference is that by the time this happens, the payload is more or less out in the open, with nothing to hit along its path. To be honest, I'm not really sure I get the point. I mean, it's a cool mechanism, but it seems to me that if your goal was to get the payload out of the payload bay before deploying it, we already had a method for doing that. The remote manipulator system. The 50-foot-long articulated robot arm could not only get it out of the payload bay, I'm pretty sure it could even clear the big tail at the back of the orbiter. I guess maybe if you didn't like the idea of astronauts manually deploying your fancy payload, or if you wanted to save the energy of carrying the RMS to orbit, then the SPDS makes some sort of sense. But also, maybe there's a reason it only seems to have flown this one time. Anyway, at some point in the mission, the secret payload was probably deployed using the Stabilized Payload Deployment System. What next? Well, I can tell you what folks on the ground would have seen. The payload would have been deployed into the same orbit as the shuttle, around 200 kilometers up. Ground observers noted that the spacecraft was pretty bright and easy to track, so they had no trouble keeping an eye on things, especially when stuff started to get weird. On March 7th, just a few days after departing the space shuttle, ground observers noted that the spacecraft had moved from a 200-kilometer orbit all the way up to an 800-kilometer orbit. And on top of that, it had increased its inclination from 62 to 65 degrees. A 600-kilometer orbit raise, and more importantly, a 3-degree inclination change, requires some pretty big maneuvers. By my rough estimate, you'd need around 500 meters per second of delta V, which is more than some missions get for their entire lifetime. But what's really weird is that shortly after this, the Soviet Union announced that their radar had observed the spacecraft break apart into four large fragments. They declared the secretive payload to be a failure. Responding to the Soviets, the DoD basically said, no, everything is fine, but there is some hardware associated with the mission that will re-enter the atmosphere soon. So maybe something broke, maybe there was some sort of boost stage, who knows. But here's the weirdest bit of all. Ground observers were able to track this thing for a while in its new orbit, but then it disappeared. Nobody could find it. It wasn't until 1996 that ground observers spotted it again. What was going on here? Well, it's classified, so we have no idea. Oh, by the way, this is completely and totally unrelated, but let me tell you about this really cool patent that I recently discovered. It was filed on March 14, 1990, just a few days after STS-36 landed, so that's kind of cool already. The patent is for something called a Satellite Signature Suppression Shield, and describes an inflatable shield designed to suppress the radiation signature of a satellite. Radiation in this case meaning visible light, radar, lasers, whatever. It looks like the idea was to basically inflate a big conical balloon on one end of the spacecraft. The cone would be coated with material to reflect away various types of radiation. Gee, that's pretty neat. 
I bet if such a device were to be deployed on a real spacecraft, then people watching it from the ground would suddenly lose track of it and wonder where it went. Huh. I wonder if they ever actually used a system like that. Eh, probably not. <laughs> when I first wrote this episode, I had a fun section here where I was going to goof about the names and code names of classified satellites. They always have mysterious or epic-sounding titles, seemingly put together with nothing but nonsense words. But, technically, even if it's out in the open, and has been for decades, classified stuff is still classified. And since I do work in the space industry and might someday have need for a clearance, I'm going to stay on the safe side and not rattle off a bunch of ridiculous classified satellite names. But what I can do is rattle off names of something else, which actually seem to capture the same spirit of top-secret satellite names. Japanese video games. I was originally going to mix some satellite names in here and make you guess which is a satellite and which is a game, and I actually think it would have been a real challenge. But instead, would you believe me if I told you about the new signal intelligence satellite, Bravely Default? How about the one with the fancy new optics and extreme resolution, dot hack slash? There's always the classified communications relay, Infinite Undiscovery, or my all-time favorite, the missile detection system, Crimson Clover World Ignition. <laughs> Maybe Japanese game developers know more than they're letting on. So, since we can't talk about what's happening outside Atlantis, let's take a look inside. STS-36 didn't carry much in the way of mid-deck experiments. I would guess that a combination of the low-performance dogleg ascent and the bureaucratic headache of flying stuff on a classified mission kept things pretty light. But there was still stuff to keep the crew occupied. First, once again, the humidity systems acted up and the crew discovered a bunch of free-floating water in the floor. At least this time they had a nice new vacuum to help slurp it up. And of course, it wouldn't be a shuttle mission without tags jamming. But I guess they're getting better. After a little finessing from the crew, they were able to continue using it as long as they limited printouts to 10 pages or less. Oh, and there was one science experiment. The return of the Phantom Head. You can head back to episode 101, covering STS-28, if you want to hear more about this bizarre experiment. But I couldn't not mention that the instrumented human skull had once again found itself in orbit. Far from being creeped out by it, the crew seems to have made a friend of it. Mullane described them attaching it to a sleeping bag and sneaking up on people with it like a stowaway. They shot some video of these antics, but they somehow didn't make the post-flight presentation video, since the higher-ups were sick of the news only showing the goofy clips, even when the crews were doing serious business. Oh well. So, unlucky with bad weather at launch, the crew was also unlucky with good weather for landing, meaning that there was no reason to extend their stay in space. On flight day 5, the crew suited up, strapped in, and the Ohms pod slowed the orbiter down by 78 meters per second, about 175 miles per hour. Entry was mostly nominal, but the crew did end up being saved by the substantial redundancy built into Atlantis. At some point during entry, the levels of hydraulic fluid began to drop. No one knew it at the time, but a hydraulic line had burst. Hydraulics are the lifeblood of basically any aircraft, and at the moment, that's what Atlantis was. Without hydraulics, the computer and commander would be unable to move the large control surfaces that kept the shuttle pointed in the right direction. 
The crew fell back on their endless training and simply isolated the leaky fluid system, and Atlantis was able to land safely. Though I imagine it made one heck of a mess wherever that burst line was. Atlantis touched down 4 days, 10 hours, 18 minutes, and 22 seconds after lifting off, with another successful mission under its belt. What did it do up there? Well, set yourself a reminder to file a Freedom of Information Act request sometime around 2030, and maybe you'll find out. While this flight didn't mark any significant milestone for the shuttle program, it does for us. Before we started talking about that big white orbital space plane, we spent a while talking about capsules and a little black space plane. Between Project Mercury, two X-15 flights, Project Gemini, the Apollo program, Skylab, and the Apollo-Soyuz test flight, we talked about 34 different missions. Well, with this episode, we mark 34 space shuttle missions. From this point onwards, most of the space above us will have been about the space shuttle. Now, true, I did split up a bunch of those Apollo and Skylab episodes, so there are still more non-shuttle episodes than shuttle episodes. But still, it's a milestone that I've had my eye on for a while, and I thought it was worth calling out. I think it's also another great opportunity for me to say thanks for coming along for the ride. Next time, we will deliver one of the most important shuttle payloads of the entire program to orbit, the Hubble Space Telescope. After years in the making, I cannot wait to finally see those crystal clear photographs beamed down from NASA's new flagship space-based observatory. Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass. Pass.